The Podcast Show London is back for its second edition this spring, with PodPod proud to be media partners. The daytime event will once again bring together thousands from the global podcast community under one roof at the Business Design Centre in Islington on the 24th and 25th of May. Whether you're an independent podcast creator, industry professional or brand, this one-of-a-kind event is there to inspire, power and support the future of the entire podcasting world. And if you're looking for a podcast fan fix, the podcast show Live brings a week-long live podcast festival to London from the 22nd to the 28th of May, celebrating world-class talent and bringing your favourite voices to major venues. For more information and to save 25% on day passes, visit thepodcastshowlondon.com. Hello and welcome to PodPod, the podcast all about podcasting for podcasters. My name is Rihanna Dillon and I am joined this week by Reem Makari, who is our PodPod journalist and researcher, and Adam Shepard, editor of PodPod. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm so excited because we have got a couple of my favourite ever guests on the podcast today. We're going to be talking to Dan Schreiber and Andrew Hunter-Murray all about No Such Thing as a Fish, which I think I've mentioned before is one of my all-time favourite listens. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of fangirling going on, right? Yeah, a lot of it from me. Yeah, most of it from Adam. Yeah, yeah. this was an absolute bucket list interview for me. The Fish Guys have been doing such a phenomenal job for like almost a decade and just really one of the absolute grand doms of the podcast world. I know, we kind of delve into everything from live recordings about how they have managed to sustain this format for nine years. They've just celebrated their nine-year anniversary. And yeah, you'll just hear a lot of me gushing, I'm afraid. Sorry, can't do anything about that. (laughs) But also, in the news this week, it's a pretty important time for podcasting. So Adam, tell us what's going on over at Spotify. So Spotify had their annual Stream On event, which is basically their big kind of presentation event to show off new features, updates, business developments, all of that kind of stuff. So they announced a whole range of things, a complete redesign of the app and the way that works, new personalization features, new discovery features, new previews in the home screen, vertical scrolling TikTok style home screen with more clips and all of that kind of stuff, uh, really geared towards personalization and discovery for both music and podcasts. They announced a whole raft of new partnerships, new content partnerships, new deals with creators. They announced that Megaphone and Anchor, which are two of their kind of hosting platforms, will be rolling into Spotify for podcasters. But for me, the most significant announcement was that Spotify will be partnering with Patreon. So anyone that has a Patreon subscription program, as we detailed in our last episode, will be able to make their subscriber-only patron benefits available through Spotify natively. They'll be able to have people subscribing to their Patreon from the Spotify platform, and they will be able to offer their bonus content in the form of bonus episodes or video clips available without them having to leave Spotify to do it. So this is quite a hefty change. Reem, you were there as well. What really stood out for you that you think is going to make an impact on people who podcast regularly? One of the features that really stood out for me was they introduced a new autoplay feature in the discovery page for podcasts, which Spotify already has for music. And I listen to my music on Spotify. And honestly, there is many times where I've saved a lot of songs to my playlist based on the autoplay feature because the way they really connect with exactly what you're listening to or what you're in the mood for, it's always just like hits the right spot. And a lot of it does end up saved in my playlists. I'm interested to see how they're going to do that with podcasts because podcasts are hard to discover if they're not by word of mouth or you're not looking at charts. So for something that's going to be as an autoplay feature, it might introduce you to like a whole new range of podcasters that you didn't even think of searching before. So very, very excited for that. That's awesome. So wait, so you use Spotify for your music. Do you use that for all of your podcasts as well? Or do you kind of mix it up with your platforms? No, I use Apple Podcasts for 
my podcasts and Spotify for my music. I think it's just because I like to keep them in two separate applications <laughs> yeah. so that I'm not too overwhelmed. But maybe now I'll start playing podcasts on Spotify. I don't know. Mm. What about you, Adam? How do you listen to your podcasts? So I generally tend to listen via Google Podcasts. Oh. I was going through Spotify for a long time. This might end up pulling me back onto Spotify as a regular podcast listener, though, because a lot of the kind of discovery updates and just general quality of life things that are specifically geared at podcast listeners is really interesting. And, you know, particularly for someone who spends so much time trying to find good new shows to watch. Watch. I mean, watch works. <laughs> that is a real Freudian slip, though. The line between video podcasts and audio podcasts is becoming increasingly blurry. In fact, a large part of the announcements from Spotify's event were geared towards video podcasts making video podcasts more accessible for creators, making video podcasts more appealing to Spotify users. But that's another podcast. These updates may end up tempting me back over to, to Spotify as a, a consistent podcast user. I don't know where I stand with the idea of visual podcasts because that's just streaming platforms. That's like YouTube. And mm. it's like that whole thing of how we keep kind of going like two steps forward, one step back. And it's like they remember what was so good about the past and then they try and re-up that again. Like mm. I keep seeing um, adverts at the moment for you have like these, you know, your AirPods and they keep being like, mm. you keep losing your AirPods. Why don't you try this wire that connects them? I'm like, that's just <laughs> wired headphones. Literally. It's fashion. <laughs> You've just invented headphones is what you've done. It's just so odd to me because um, I thought the whole point of podcasts is that it's something that you listen to while you are on the move and that you listen to while you're doing a million other things. Yeah, you're right, though. It's a whole new mm. podcast. Let's do that another week. But for <laughs> now, let's get into our conversation all about live podcast shows with the guys from No Such Thing as a Fish. <laughs> Andy Hunter-Murray and Dan Triber from No Such Thing as a Fish. Welcome to PodPod. Hello. Hi. I am so excited about this. <laughs> you guys are my favourite podcast. I've been listening pretty much since the beginning. It's the only reason I took this job at PodPod was in the hope of one day interviewing you guys. <laughs> Get away. Sorry, Anna can't be here. and We know that's who you really would have liked to have met. Yeah. I know, <laughs> but it's, it's for a good reason. We'll get into that later. Yeah. Congratulations on your nine-year anniversary. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, crazy that it's been going nine years now. It yeah. is it's incredible. What did you do to celebrate? Almost nothing. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> we sent out a tweet. Well, I sent out a tweet and then Andy just retweeted it, just adding uh, like three words. Um, so I did the heavy lifting there. Yeah, and then Andy sort which of... Is, which is the opposite of how it normally is on the podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we are going to be talking all about kind of live podcast shows because mm. that's a huge part of what you guys do. I've been to one. So I know intimately your structure. <laughs> What show did you come to? I went to the Brighton one where, again, Anna eluded me because mm. she wasn't able to come. So you had Deborah Francis White instead. Yeah. Oh, that one. Yeah. And it was like my, my, one of my best friend's kind of first outing since she's had her baby. So it was, it was oh. brilliant. It was such nice. a lovely thing because we've both been listening from the beginning. But speaking of the beginning, I need to stop fangirling. There were <laughs> a lot of QI elves. So how come it ended up being you four who made this sort of spin-off podcast? So yeah, there's Dan and I here, James Harkin and Anna Tachinsky. Dan and I just half of it. Dan, you were the one who put well, it together? Yeah, I was like the Nick Fury, I guess. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Avengers recently, so it's probably going to go over a few people's heads. Samuel L. Jackson, head of S.H.I.E.L.D. He, oh, oh, great, thanks. That, yeah, I mean, that's only in self-referential terms that other people will understand who you've also been watching yeah but, okay yeah. fine which is the rest of the world by the way andy <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 second highest grossing movie of all time but can you explain it in terms relevant to avatar the way of water <laughs> <laughs> the third highest grossing movie of all time yeah there's been a lot of elves over the years i joined back in 2004 or three as an elf andy you came in 2008 eight. 
in between my starting and then Andy starting to now, there's been huge numbers of elves, all who would have been capable of coming onto a show like No Such Thing as a Fish. At the time when the show was being conceived and we were trying to find out why it would work, largely to begin with, the thought was me and Andy were the two people who had performance history We were both stand-ups. Andy does a lot of improv stuff. It made perfect sense that if we were going to go out into um, a sort of more public way as the elves, that that would make sense to have us two. James hadn't done too much performance, but he was a producer at that point. And as part of his job for Radio 4, he would stand on stage and introduce the hosts. And you would do some gags and so on when you're doing that. So he also had a bit of it. And also Harkin's sort of head of research the oracle of QI information. When we were coming up with the show, it felt like you could have an idiot like me on it next to (laughs) someone like him and you would have the yin and yang. And then it was filling in the rest. And then obviously, as soon as Andy opens his mouth, it makes perfect sense that no one can sit in his seat. And same with Anna. And then it kind of grew just as its own beast as soon as we got the Avengers together. I see. So if you think about your nine-year anniversary, your very last show, compared to your very first one, has any anything much changed in terms of the structure and the content and I guess your aims? The structure hasn't changed at all, which is embarrassing, <laughs> but it's, it's true. It's still four, Wrong. Incorrect. four if people it with broke. four facts. Exactly. It's a perfect, I, I think it's a perfect structure. It never gets boring. It needs no fixing. Don't touch it. <laughs> okay. So that's the structure. Our, our aim now Actually, I don't think we've discussed what our aim now is. I don't think we had a name then either. We just wanted to try it, (laughs) see if it worked. You would be mad to go into it expecting that it would last as long as it has done. I think we just wanted to try it and see if people wanted to listen to it. And the aim now is 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 what then? Well, Anna's away, which we'll get into mm. in a bit, but that's that's a whole new world that we're navigating because we've never really spent so much time with guests on the show and each week now for for the period that she's away we're going to have to do mm. that. And so she's on maternity leave. We've we've made it sound yeah. oh, rather yeah, yeah. more <laughs> mysterious than <laughs> it is. True. Sorry, just to quickly Yeah, let's get that, that in the bud. Yeah, yeah. She's on mat leave. Uh so she's going to be away for some months and we're booking guests, you know, for every week for for when she's away and we're, we're we're doing that yeah. now. Yeah. And interestingly, yeah. the show that you came to is the only time we've ever been on stage without Anna and yeah. having a guest on. And that was a very new experience for us in a live context because it was an unknown. We just didn't know whether or not the the audience were going to engage in it the same way. We had a first half, which very much had a... We do two halves to our live shows. The first half is a sort of written, almost stand-up bit where we each come out and do a piece. And Anna had a big piece in it. So we had a hole in our first half as well. That was interesting to navigate. And we're kind of having to do that whole thing again. But so far, it's been... We missed the hell out of Anna, obviously. But we're getting to sit down with some of our favorite comedians and friends. We've had Sarah Pascoe upcoming. There are people like Rachel Paris. Um, we just did one today with Athena Kablenu and some authors and scientists. It's it's what we love doing. We love meeting these people because this is who we get our facts from largely, you know, when it comes to the scientists. So getting them on the show itself is, yeah, it's really fun. Mm. So let's talk quickly about the show then. For people that are just familiar with the the podcast and haven't been to see you guys live, can you run us through what a live show looks like and how it might differ from the experience of just listening to an episode? Yeah, I think a really big element of why the live shows are so much fun for us and hopefully for the audience is that it is that sense of community. As in podcasting, is such, it's such an intimate medium and you listen when you're exercising or going to sleep or walking the dog or whatever it might be. And then you arrive at a theatre and you find there are, you know, 1500 other nerds who all like this thing that you <laughs> listen to completely by yourself. I think it's a it's I mean, it's a wonderful experience for us because we often get to meet the audience afterwards and and, you know, we, we hang out or we'll sign things or we'll chat or we'll go for a drink or whatever. That's amazing for us, but hopefully it also is a nice, you know, going to things where you listen by yourself or you experience these things by yourself and finding conventions, almost quasi-convention events like the shows we're putting on, I, I, I hope is fun. Yeah. Um, the show is different. It really, I mean, it, it's the same show. It's, <laughs> it's the same show we've now done about 470 episodes of, and it's uh, <laughs> but it's with that first half as well. So it's a chance for us to do a first half. And, yeah, which um, is great, which is great fun because that is, we've done four or five tours and each tour mm. we write a whole new first half. So that's the sort of exclusive bit, I guess, because obviously otherwise you're just paying to see something that's eventually going out free. Um, A longer, unedited 
yeah. uh, version of a, a thing that will be more tightly available and yeah and just better <laughs> yeah. when, when it's released so yeah. we should not charge the audience should charge really we should charge for the first half, but then we should pay them back for the second <laughs> half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Call it quits. Call it quits, yeah. When we're thinking of how we're going to put these shows together, we know that people want to come and see the live show. So that's that's the interesting sorted bit of it. We just know that the second half is always going to be that. And what's curious is years ago, we were having a conversation with Jimmy Carr in the green room of QI one night Clang. and he was yep, <laughs> he was uh, talking to us he'd been listening to fish in his car and so he was he really enjoyed it and just wanted to ask us questions about it and the live show and his thought was that we should open the show with the podcast in the first half and then do this extra bit in the second half and that, I always found that such a a weird way of billing it because the podcast is the headline act, really. This first half is your sort of entree, whereas he thought that the presence of us doing something fresh and original as a stand-up thing was actually the main the main headline. And I I still think it's the other way around. I think that is the thing about Jimmy Carr is he does not know comedy, yeah, like we do, yeah. <laughs> As Andy explained, and he hasn't been on QI since, has he? It's weird. It's weird. <laughs> well, with that structure, with because you sort of you know teased what you do in that first half, but how actually do you come to that? So you, you do you kind of have your own separate sort of stand up ideas? Are they kind of themed? We sit in a room together for what feels like a few years, just <laughs> slowly rejecting idea after idea, yeah. and then someone will say something, and then. And we we kind of start coalescing around that. So what was the last tour? The last tour was Nerd Immunity. We set out the idea that nerds <laughs> saved the world oh, when yeah. it came to the pandemic. Mm. And so we wanted to say this is a big thank you show to the nerds, but also time to get your nerd on and tell us mm. why you are as nerdy as you are. So we did a thing where Andy set it up that we are we are going city by city and town by town looking for the nerdiest person who's coming into our audience. And if you listen to us, you're going to be the nerdiest people in this city anyway. So we then, Andy said, we're the judge panel and each of us had to come up and present why we believed ourselves to be worthy of being on a nerdy judging panel and mm -hmm. sort of it's a, it's a good time to sort of talk about ourselves or just you know andy andy sometimes on a tour will do a sort of a huge love letter to cassia wristwatch for example <laughs> and you get 10 minutes of andy just really <laughs> drilling into why this function on the cassio is so great mm -hmm. and it's a nice space to just do our thing without being interrupted every three seconds by the other person who has a fact. It's just that little monologue -y moment. So that's always been really fun when we finally find the thing that we want to do for that year. Mine often involves a bit of an adventure writing to people. Anna's is very much a kind of construction. I mean, this, this year's was a departure from what she would usually do. She she wrote a piece about how she's actually not a nerd. And so she was just going to show holiday photos of a holiday she took when she should have been writing it. But then as she looked closer at the photos, she suddenly realized, oh, no, I'm a nerd. Look at that. Look at that. And so it just became a deconstruction about her mm -hmm. not knowing why mm -hmm. she was a nerd. James always likes to do a sort of showpiece, a magic act or a, or a song or something that has a bit more pizzazz to it. It's very, um, really brilliantly constructed. You know, it yeah. all builds up to there's a stand up bit and then it ends with the act or the song or whatever so it interestingly even though it's the bit where we feel like it's the most fun because once you've written it and you can go out and do it on stage you're just tweaking and and just finding a laugh in a different spot each night um like doing stand-up but it also is the highest bit of stress of our whole tour because we can never manage to bring it down to a good time <laughs> and and poor andy more than anyone Get really upset. really just <laughs> you know almost quitting the band level of, of anger you know, the first half should be 45 minutes and i don't think we've ever done it in under 55 no. and often we get off the stage after the first half and it's been more than an hour and i just think you know fidel castro himself wouldn't have yeah and it's amazing because you can have a great first half it'll be amazing we're buzzing and we'll walk you know, there's, there's like there there are T-shirts, pants, flowers being thrown oh, onto yeah. the stage. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Those are my... <laughs> <laughs> like the mayor is waiting in the wings with the keys to the city. Yeah. yeah. And so we'll get off and we'll be looking at each other like, yes! And then after three seconds, Andy will go, what the f***?
were you thinking you were doing running on as long as you did you put that extra bit in we said that should have been um and you need you need that we all we all at various different times play that that character uh, well what uh, it's, it's dominated largely by one man um, but that's really fun that's why we love doing the tour and as andy says meeting the fans we always get these little moments where you get to experience what the podcast is is as someone's as part of someone's life we as we were saying mm. nine years i put the tweet out and my favorite thing that came through was from a lady who said it's seen me through night feeds with two kids mm. i listen almost every night to back episodes in fact at one point the theme music alone was enough to induce a breastfeeding <laughs> letdown <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's what we live for hearing those kind of comments um, absolutely brilliant yeah. And then you just don't know when the podcast is really hitting with people. And that's to be in a room and get to hear people, Andy making a Moss reference and, and the mm. audience going ballistic yeah. or <laughs> Anna making a cutting remark and the laughter being of a higher caliber than it maybe even deserves because it's her shtick. Like, it's like, yes, she took Dan down, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> me mentioning a Yeti, James doing a very labored pun. Like, yeah. it's it's so nice to see that that's so part of the experience. Mm. Mm. How much do you edit out? And is there a conversation about what should be left in? Is it still James that's editing? James does the edits, yeah. So is it his discretion? It is his discretion, yeah. yeah. But we know that he's going to do a really, really great job on the edit, as in you don't get the show back and it's sort of 80 of James's facts and none of <laughs> the other like You sort of have to trust whoever's doing the edit at a certain point. And it, a lot does get edited out. I mean, we sometimes record for two hours and we'll broadcast one. Oh, you know? wow. Yeah. So, well, both Dan and James have this experience on the radio show, The Museum of Curiosity, mm. which some recordings are still going on for that show <laughs> that started when they were <laughs> producing. And so, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah they, they both have that, not Radio 4 in, in particular, but radio in general mm. sensibility of mm. this is going to be a tight broadcast. I think that's one of the reasons that the show was successful in the first place and has stayed high quality over the years is because there are four people who really care about it every week um, yeah. in their various capacities. That was another thing with timing. Timing seems, I've just realized, quite a big thing for you. We used to do 30-minute episodes because James and I, from a Radio 4 background, mm. you do a two-hour recording and you bring it down to 27, 28 minutes. Mm. And we started doing that. And then we realized quite quickly... We don't need to do that because there's so much good stuff coming in here and there's a longer listening capacity for podcasts. And Andy was fuming <laughs> when when we were heading towards the one hour mark on podcasting. I, I, think, I think we're sort of presenting me as a fumer. That's <laughs> your timing. And I'm actually... Really chilled. I'm actually a very calm... And fun, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you told us you're fun, so of course you are. Yeah. yeah. No, I, get, yeah. Is, I think we yeah. do... I think I just... I worry that... How many hours are there in a week? I think it's 168. <laughs> mm. And I just think you're taking one, whatever percentage that is of someone's time. Yeah, agreed. You know, that's a lot. And waking hours, it's even it's an even higher proportion of that. They could pause it and spread it out over two weeks. Well, then that, you, you're, you're just stacking up a problem for next week, aren't you? Not you really, because then you're just doubling the lifespan of the podcast for yourself. <clears throat> yeah, I suppose. I just, I think you have a right to ask for maybe one hour of someone's time each week. Yeah. Um, and if you ask for much more than that you might get a diminishing return. The bell curve might start to drop away. You mm. know what I mean? Andy also wanted us to stop at 100 episodes. Um, <laughs> did, I, did I? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a nice round number. I didn't yeah, you really. really. You really did, yeah. No. Yeah. Andy. Well, <laughs> in hindsight, I still think that would have been the right decision. <laughs> 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 did I really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 100 episodes. You're like, that's a good number. Let's, let's quit there. <laughs> You were still getting over the whole expanded to 50 minutes plus uh, situation. <laughs> I just can't remember saying yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know why I remember these things. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, 500, we're going to stop. 500. 500. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on the, on the subject of the longer recordings then, something that has proved quite popular with other podcasters, particularly those who have kind of Patreon subscriptions and things like that, is offering the sort of longer uncut recordings as kind of mm. bonus content for subscribers. Is that something that's ever occurred to you as a as a sort of possibility? Ooh, no, I don't. I'm not sure that's ever occurred to us. We have just started Patreon and you know the Apple subscription model, mm. and what we what we do is we do 
uh, compilations of bits that didn't make it in. So that is kind of similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are there are also uh, bonus formats that we've started uh, busting out. You know, things. There's a thing called Clubfish, and we're we're trying out various different formats of show. And every couple of weeks, you get a new uh, bit of stuff of whatever format that is. I think for the longer uncut ones, because we're so fact based, and because sometimes things will be cut out because we didn't quite express them right, or because. Mm. Uh, actually, there's a mistake in there, or whatever it is. Yeah. As in, there's a there's a heavy layer of fact checking that goes into every week's edit, mm. and so I think paying for an uncut version of the show might just mean you get one that is less correct. <laughs> and, yeah, um, we do we do have that strong because we've all worked on QI at various points. We have that really strong sensibility of you got to get it right mm. almost all. I mean, we're always going to make slight bloopers here and there. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And also, there are just bits where comedically if we tried to just go on a riff on something it doesn't quite land and yeah it's a less good show yeah. if you keep that in so yeah as andy says the the whole point of the show to begin with was let's blow your mind with interesting facts mm. and so let's just keep the correct ones in and let's bring it as tight as possible so that it's just fact 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 mm. and we obviously get as we've grown and our personalities have been more injected into the show that creates a looser show and a better show. But mm. yeah, we still have a, a quality level. And on, on the point of editing with James, what usually it works is the other way around where we'll just say to James, I really didn't like that bit I said, or I thought that that was incorrect. Can you double check? We'll, we'll, we'll give him the edits as suggestions or we'll feel really strongly. Like mm. I, re- I, I said a terribly unfunny joke there. And he's not relating, but I did. Uh, and can you take that out kind of thing. And so what happens if you kind of repeat a fact maybe down the line? Because you mm-hmm. can't remember nine years worth of facts. No. But somebody must kind of pull you up on that. Or is there like, you know, a layer for James to well, kind of have to we have back? a secret weapon. Oh, yeah, it's a, a it's a spreadsheet that I keep, which contains every single fact we've ever said on the no. show. That's amazing. Yeah. And we're on. Actually, hang on. I have to, I have to think. Open on my own laptop now. We are on line twenty seven thousand one hundred and thirty nine. <laughs> wow! And that's all the episodes. Every every kind of discrete fact someone has started saying that's incredible so that's always because you come in with one fact each but then you obviously yeah. do so many little kind of jumping off ones yeah yeah and so all those are in there well yeah the, the every every headline fact and every supplementary fact wow. basically and so what we'll do is pre a show if we sarah pasco is on the latest show that's just gone out she did a fact about pringles we just do a keyword search each of mm-hmm. us individually find out all the things we've said about pringles mm-hmm. before make sure not to say that again sometimes we slip up and we mm. because we'll obviously the keyword is what you're searching for and sometimes maybe when the fact was originally said the full name of a person who said this thing was you'll you'll get accidents where we do double up mm. um but we our attempt is to not do that yeah so in theory that's 27,000 unique facts in that document what level of patreon do i need to subscribe to to get access to that spreadsheet because <laughs> honestly that is my dinner party conversation sorted forever <laughs> elon musk himself it is very proprietary uh, yeah no it's it is mad looking at it you just start doing something and then nine years later yeah when you're thinking about the facts that you're finding for your live shows do you have a process of finding ones for those shows that you don't have for the podcast do you kind of like pick and choose very carefully yeah we do yeah we, they have to be a bit funnier right basically the aim is for them always to be a bit funny even in the office shows but yeah. something that'll get a laugh from an audience just it sets you off much better mm-hmm. well, and you do a lot of regional facts as well right yeah yeah yeah, yeah um, that's quite fun doing that because often you'll know that you, you we've got we're in two mindsets whenever we do these shows one is you want to make the best show possible for the audience in the room mm. but you also have to remember that when the show goes out it's a global show reaching far more than the people that were in that room so we've got two shows we're making and the regional stuff always just feels really fun because there's something about the adventure of going to doncaster and 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 finding out doncaster facts and lobbing him into that episode there's just there's something that gives it i think with like when you see a great stand-up and the room becomes part of the act that always makes for a better show anywhere it's Mm. it it says that this is not just a prepared thing and i guess that's sometimes 
a lot of people ask us questions about how prepared are you when you go onto a show in terms of knowing what each other is going to say. And we used to, in the live shows, I don't really do it anymore, but I used to always have to say, you're going to see that we have lots of bits of paper up here and you're going to see us reading from it. But what we do is we send each other the headline fact. That's it. That's all we know about what's going to happen tonight. We go away and research it. And this is just so that we don't get names wrong or dates wrong and just make sure the details are right. But everything on my paper, no one has seen. And that's a part of trying to make sure that everyone knows that you're in a room of something that's happening live. This is no prep in terms of us mm-hmm. coordinating jokes or or facts or anything like that. Mm. That whole idea of prepping for the, whichever region you are or whichever theatre you're in, that's kind of, that feels quite radio for as well, right? You know, thinking about like, I'm sorry, mm. I haven't a clue going to yeah. live recordings of that. You know, they'll always make sure that there are some jokes included about that particular theatre or area. So how much do you think then, because you kind of talked about it earlier, but how much do you think that your radio backgrounds have informed when you do live performances? Because that's a very different beast, but you do, you have a live audience as opposed to a podcast, which is more similar to the radio. Yeah, I've never thought about that. I did I did seven years of producing Museum of Curiosity. And as part of doing that was the creation of it, which took basically a year as well oh, and wow. doing pilot a pilot for it. I mean, it, t- it took a long time to try and work out how to make a comedy show where guests were coming on who weren't comedians. What's the best environment? What's going to appeal? You know, there's so many factors of trying to work out how that was going to work. For me, the radio bit kind of is not as important as the mentoring of John Lloyd in that process because John has very high standards for every element of every bit of a show that he makes. The script needs to be the best. And even when it's in the best, when it's in the best shape, do another draft, get Mm -hmm. it even better. Mm -hmm. The editing needs to be tight. You need to make sure that you're looking after each guest and that they come across as perfectly as possible. There were all these little lessons for me as a, as a producer before doing this that I picked up in a very much uh, wanting to show that I was capable of meeting the high standard of John's. And and James had to do the same thing. Andy has a different side where his, his standard high bar is on a performance and writing side. And he'd worked with John on QI books at this point, so knows the side of delivery, not in a broadcast sense. I mean, you would have with QI, I guess, doing that. But I don't think radio itself had anything... I never really even listened to Radio 4 because I'm not from Britain. I, d- I didn't really know it mm-hmm. that much. But uh, what I knew was standards, finding handlebars, hence the format of fish. It's not just one fact. If you don't like this one fact, we've got three more coming. So mm. don't worry. You, ca- you can't lose as a format in mm. that respect. Um, it was finding those things where you just go, what is watertight? And that's why I, I, I'd rather um, egotistically, when, I, when we talk about the format, I genuinely think the fish format is the most beautiful simple format that could be created for the kind of thing that we do. I think we just nailed it with Mm. that simplicity. It's why we haven't had to touch it. Mm. Mm. And it's been obviously globally successful. You know, you mentioned you've got a a global audience and you've taken the the live shows on tour around the world, right? Yeah. We've, what have we done? We've done Australia and New Zealand, uh, the USA briefly, sort of dipped our toes in there, uh, Europe and lots of the UK. Yeah. The live shows have been amazing internationally. The European ones are always interesting because you think, what's the language barrier going to be like? And they always are fine. We never really had to do much. It's a varying heights, I would say. Where was the one where you felt we had to work hardest? Paris or Berlin. Yeah, but that's because no one came. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 Dan's exaggerating for comic effect. Um, yeah, Paris in particular sold, sold quite poorly. Yeah, that's quite surprising to me. I think because I'm used to you guys kind of selling out so many tours on such a regular basis. I'm curious though, have they always been that popular? Kind of from the start of when you did live shows, was the reception always kind of that strong? I don't want to say a religious experience for the people <laughs> at those early gigs. But no, actually, I think it has always been. We, I mean, we, we started really gently. We started with a 40 seater in North London, oh, a wow. pub called Aces and Eights, which is lovely. It's oh, I love Aces and Eights. 
Tuffnell yeah, Park? Yeah, yeah, it's, Tuffnell um, Park. it's Tuffnell Park. Tuffnell yeah. Park. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and we, we just thought, let's just see if anyone likes it at all. And the ticket sold. And, and so then we tried a, you know, 100 seater or something like that. And that was quite early on. It was only a year or two. In, yeah, I think. I think we very cleverly did. Um, <laughs> did what? We slowly built up. We didn't just jump into a deep end. Like there's quite a few podcasts that just go for like a podcast festival and and they're like, we'll put you in the big room with, with 500 seats. We may have been able to get a bigger audience to begin with, but it just was more comfortable. Also, one of the things that I spent quite a lot of time doing in the early days was trying to convince Anna to do the live shows because oh, yeah. she really just didn't have an interest. Anna, Anna came to this completely not not reluctant for the idea she thought it was fun and it was great but she didn't want to be a performer that was not part of her life plan mm. at all she was going to be someone who was doing facts which she loves doing and still loves doing and she does a lot of charity work and that's her that's her big goal and when we sat down for the first time when we did the podcast Anna just blew us away with the wit and the, the storytelling and the brevity that she, I mean, anyone who listens to our show just knows how special she is. And so that then became a begging game. Just Anna, please, can you do more? Can you be the, the fourth seat? Can you go live? Can we do more shows? Can we? And oh, she, she Anna eventually didn't want to do it. Live. Of, I didn't want to go past a hundred episodes. Oh no, I had to drag you guys into this. <laughs> thing. Fault, but, yeah. Here. Yeah. but then Anna kind of hit a moment where she realized that it was still, she, I mean, even, even to a point where we were getting advertising stuff, I remember Anna feeling really guilty about the time away from doing her main QI job. She always, always so concerned about the money that was being lost for the company. Cause we, we didn't get advertising. We started at a point where advertising didn't quite exist for podcasting. Mm-hmm certainly mm. in the UK. And we did, I think, outside of one sponsorship we did, we, we, there was a visit, visit England. England. Yep. We, there was zero money coming into the podcast <laughs> for like seven months, eight months or something. A quite a, like a huge number of adverts <laughs> yeah. we recorded over a long spell of time. <laughs> it's so weird that we, we can remember a time before there was advertising. As in, it does sometimes feel like saying to people, and then you had to take your 50p coin you had to go to the internet cafe over the road if you wanted to send an email yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it's even weirder to me knowing where we came from in that respect of hearing a new podcast launch and before you even get to the beginning of the show this week's episode is sponsored yeah. by and you're like where did you get sponsorship? <laughs> yeah, they don't I think even you're know getting ahead of yourselves. Yeah, do well, four years first. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when did that happen for you? Because I remember I had to host a panel a few years ago at a podcast festival, and I remember sort of using you as an example of adverts that I didn't skip over because you were reading them, and it was like sort of one mm, of the earliest yeah. examples of host read adverts, something that I listened to. So was that always the plan? Was was it you know kind of broached to you? Did you come up with that idea? We, we tried a couple of different versions of it. I think there were, in the early days, we started 2014, the show in general. I think in 2016, we did some um, played-in adverts, you know, pre-recorded ones. Mm. I think that due to an administrative error or some foul play... We ended up playing adverts for Donald Trump's presidential campaign on our show. Oh, dear. At which point we said... And border control. And border control. You, oh. You're like working for border control, oh you know. Do you want gosh. a nice uniform and some authority? And um, I think at that point we said, right, shut it down. We're going <laughs> to read yeah. every single advert. I think it was because the... Tr- I don't want to slander the Trump campaign, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think they might, you know, because you can uncheck various boxes when you yeah. ask what you want to advertise. You can uncheck gambling yeah. or arms dealing or I don't know how how BAE systems advertises on podcasts. Yeah. But um, I, I think the Trump campaign may have uh, not categorized themselves as politics. Yeah. So, anyone, so we had unchecked politics because yeah. we don't want to do any of that. I, I I think that was what we we later found it had happened. But what's interesting is that Trump got into power not long after that. And so... It was interesting to see our influence on the (laughs) in the global community. It was three specific states, wasn't it? Yeah, where where, yeah, because we know that when they voted, they all used the offer code fish as a. (laughs) So it's good you can monitor these things. Just on the international tours and just talking about the building up higher and higher to bigger gigs. Mm. One of the things which is the beauty of podcasting is you get the data in a way that you can never get as a stand-up comedian who's mm. playing clubs. We can look 
into the computer and work out exactly where we have listeners, which means we can do a European tour. And we know that if we book out a room that's a 500 seater, we're going to fill it in this town that none of us have any family or ever been to or anything. We can rock up assured that that's going to happen. And curiously, the France gig, particularly the Paris one, we were advised against doing it because famously gigs don't sell well for British acts in Paris. That's what they told us. We were like, no, but we're different because we can see the numbers. Um, And that's the only time where the numbers, I think, went against us. Every other gig we sell out because it's like Moneyball. We can see the science of it. We mm. know that this is going to work in this tiny town or this or this large city, you know, wherever. That's always so fun. Mm. You know, God, do, we, do people know us in Sydney? Yeah, they do. Let's book the Sydney Opera House. And we managed to sell out the Sydney Opera House. That's mm. an inconceivable idea if we didn't know the numbers. It's a hell of an achievement. Yeah, that, I mean, that's got to be, for me as an Aussie, that, that was absolutely the highlight of our of our live side of fish. I think it was I think it was your second ever gig in Australia, Dan. Yeah. And the first one was a ten minute stand up in a pub before you left. Yeah. Set out to, to you know travel the world and seek a fortune. My first ever stand- <laughs> homecoming gig was yeah. the opera house. It was the second second time my dad ever saw me on stage. The first time was bombing at the comedy store in Sydney when I was eighteen. And then the second gig was bombing on stage at the sold out Sydney Opera House. I think that's so interesting though. Just thinking about the difference between a something really intimate it's a much smaller place than the sydney opera house how does that affect your live shows because like you said the whole point of podcasts generally is the intimacy of them that you're Mm. you very much feel like you're part of the conversation that you're listening just with you guys when you have kind of thousands and thousands of other people does it lose some of that intimacy or how does that work for you guys yeah i think it does maybe a tiny bit but we'd never play anywhere like the o2 because we simply couldn't sell a, a, a space like that yeah. you can't sell ten thousand seats on one night um well you don't know until you try so, yeah we'll book it all right <laughs> yeah. but we'll tell them we'll tell them you're, Adam's you're your insuring it Adam. Oh, yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah um, no i think so i think the biggest gig we've ever done is probably about three thousand people and it does oh, wow. it does lose a little bit of the intimacy but it's mostly depending on the shape of the room as in yeah the, the people who build these Victorian theatres that you're often appearing in, they were so good at, at constructing them so that everyone has, you know, that people are kind of leaning or that they're at a raked angle or they're on a, they're on a balcony, but they're really good at making the audience feel quite close to the stage. Um, and the other nice thing is that I often describe the podcast as, as a club and w- the four of us are the steering committee, if you like. We're the ones who are actually on stage, but everyone is part of the club. Everyone is a member of it. And so when you're watching a show, you're you're watching the individual facts and jokes, but really you're more watching the four of us make fun of each other and, and, and be interested in each other's facts and laugh at each other's jokes. And so, so that intimacy is always preserved no matter where we are. I think we have an interesting relationship with the listeners of the show. I often really hesitate to say fan because I do think when you meet someone who likes fish, more often than not, they want to tell you an interesting fact. And we've Mm. become buddies to a lot of these people. Again, the messages that we get whenever we send out something like, it's our anniversary, happy birthday, that we get these extraordinary messages that come back with people who've taken us into their lives in quite an intimate way. Mm. And I often find that the live shows, that holds true. Like if there's a relationship of me getting the piss taken out of me on stage by the guys that transfers to the to the listener so anyone i meet is just really happy just to rip the shit out of me straight away <laughs> like they've known me for years and mm. there's, there's there's a beauty in that because i think the opposite is is a bad place to be i think the opposite when you have the what musicians have with fans you can have zero conversation with those people because they don't have anything to say. They're too busy thinking that they're in front of a god. They're this rock star is their god. So the intimate gigs for me slightly are a bit more intimidating in that respect because you get heckles, which are sometimes hard to, or people are listening in different ways. And then the bigger gigs have their own other intimidation, which is you can usually get most of a crowd on side with a laugh, which is the benefit of any large room. The laugh carries over and people feel comfortable doing it. But at the same time, as I said before, we don't know what we're going to say on stage that night. We don't have a polished show that we know is guaranteed laughs. And if you get into a place where you feel the show's not going as funny as you wanted it to, that can be a nerve wracking place when you've got 3,000 people sitting mm-hmm. there because you think we brought 3,000 people out to see this. 
and we're we're not quite gelling tonight. Mm-hmm. And then you get off and then they go, wow, that was so interesting. And you forget that people like the show for as much of the interesting chat as mm-hmm. the comedy. Mm-hmm. For us, the reason we pick funnier facts for the live shows is the laughter is what lets us know the show is going good. Mm. So when that's not there and there's 3,000 people there, you think, oh, God, are they enjoying this? You can't really hear 3,000 people being interested in something. No, Mm. there's no noise. There's Well, Mm. but people don't, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Really, I think I'm... I think I'm nervous at shows which have. <laughs> this is going to sound absolutely mad and probably um, quite vain, but I think I'm I'm nervous at shows which have under 200 or more than 2,000 people. Under 200 <laughs> and more than two. Yeah, okay. I think yeah. Natural, that makes sense. F- our natural furlong is is roughly within there. You can still keep the intimacy. I mean, th- like 3,000 is a bit in, you know intimidating. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you are necessarily going to be quite geographically quite far away from some people. Yeah, it, it, it's harder. Yeah. And when you play iconic places like the Hammersmith Apollo or the Sydney Opera House or the London Palladium, you you clang, do feel clang, like clang. it needs to be a better <laughs> show. I feel like I feel like if we were on here talking about, say, like a charity, and I kept just dropping, <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's quite down the line relevant to say the places <laughs> for this show. We should talk about our comic relief work. Though. Oh yeah, well, that was, but that was cool. That was a big part of what we did. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, that was that was amazing. That was uh, was a fun thing to do for me it was a dream come true working with comic relief as a kid obsessing over comedy you Mm. always go imagine being in a place where you can help with charity and this huge richard curtis emma freud establishment that was it's so golden and to yeah to get into a spot where we were able to do something was which was amazing we did did a a, it was the 35th year of comic relief so we we had 35 guests on each for 35 minutes which worked out at about i think 20 or 21 hours of uh, broadcasting and we did it from noon one day to have whenever it was eight or nine a.m. the next day, yeah, and um, it was amazing because we had you know wonderful people coming on the show, and and we went we traveled around the world because obviously there's a certain bit where people are asleep and you need to go to yeah. Australia for a bit and then to America. We for followed a bit, the sun yeah. it was and then amazing. come back to the early morning shift in the UK. So. Yeah, and we had, lovely. it was, yeah, so each guest brought a fact. And so we opened with Michael Palin, had the most incredible <laughs> oh technical goodness. difficulties. We had him repeat his opening fact, I think, four times. <gasps> oh, wow. And the Awful. guy was a pro. Like, yeah. he just didn't, he didn't uh, flinch. He didn't get angry or anything. And, yeah, and it was, God, it was everyone from Stephen Fry and, and Michael Palin to Philip Perry, who's coming back on to the podcast soon. Richard um, Osman. Richard Osman. We had people like the Freakonomics writer, Stephen Dubner in America. Mm. We had Reese Darby in New Zealand. We had uh, Tim Minchin in Australia. We just we were just dotting all <laughs> over the, the globe. And, and that was, you know, to, the, the enjoyment of coming up with the podcast and doing just the podcast is the, the dream gig anyway. The fact that the offshoots of doing live shows or we released a vinyl record with a special episode on it. Oh, wow. And, and we did a TV show with BBC Two where we did two series of what was called No Such Thing as the News, a I topical show. Thing. Yeah, and and then getting to do things like the comic relief thing. It's it's a wild journey you get to have off the back of this one thing which is just four people <laughs> dorking mm-hmm. out it's extraordinary <laughs> the opportunities that have come our way in in those nine years we have a jumper i don't know if you've seen yeah we spotted uh, andy's jumper it's brilliant yeah. i was just thinking definitely need money i know what's going on my christmas list <laughs> <laughs> well you should see the back it's full of facts it's really cool is it actually? It's actually yeah yeah oh my god so, that's amazing so it starts off for the last month of his life president james garfield ate everything <laughs> through his anus oh yeah and i remember that ends- episode on the Knights of the Round Table included Lancelot, Gawain, Galahad, and Gareth. <laughs> so, That's I, excellent. I must have that. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you were doing your uh, comic relief then and you had you had to get so many guests on, was that a really good kind of roster? Do you have another spreadsheet for all your guests that you can that you're able <laughs> yeah. to sort of like use now? Because obviously, like you said, Anna is away for quite a while, so you're having to pull in a lot of people. And you're, are you mixing up every week? I'd imagine you have people beating your door down. You, surprisingly oh. not. 
but we've no. had zero requests. Really? We're kicking a lot of doors in. Yeah. And then, you know, we're getting complaints about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah we, 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 at the moment, we haven't repeated anyone, but I'm sure there are people who will come back just because it's, it's so much fun recording with them. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, we're trying not to have anyone on twice. And hopefully we're going to do a, a run of live shows later in the year. And that'll Ooh. be a run of live shows where it's not all four of us. It's going to be really strange. Mm. But I'm sure it'll be lots of fun as well. Yeah. Um, exciting. Yeah. Do you always have to sort of think, because obviously there is the, the three of you then, who are guys do you try and get women in that fourth seat as often as possible is that always kind of at the forefront of your mind yeah definitely we haven't booked a man yet and we've recorded or 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 scheduled i think seven or eight shows i think we will have some guests who are guys but we're we're trying as 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 much as we can to make it even fractionally less yeah completely Macho. Yeah, yeah. We are so macho. That's the problem. That's the issue. And yeah. it's like it's oh god, step away from the barbecue. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Put those guns away. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it, it, yeah. We, it's, it's something we're uh, aware of and doing a tiny bit about, but never enough. You know. Mm. Yeah. So I just want to quickly go back to the the first live shows that you did, because yeah. that's something that a lot of podcasters are kind of interested in, you know, increasingly now that podcasting is becoming so much more widespread. How did you go about setting up those kind of first live like test projects effectively? Were you kind of reaching out to venues kind of, cold basically or did you have people coming to you that was all us um i used to do a lot of stand-up in aces and eights and it was run by the the person who i think basically had total control of the programming down there was a guy called harry, harry Deansway. yeah and so so i used to gig down there a lot and i said to harry we're looking for somewhere where we can just try this out and his whole thing was doing experimental alternative comedy so it fit perfectly in if it was a shambolic <laughs> gig that only lended to uh the the theme of his whole operation so yeah so we we tried that out there we had with us my best friend ash who ash is a musician he ran while living in london a recording studio in east london he was in a band called emperor yes and it's emperor yes's song wasps that we use as our yes. theme tune so ash is the co-writer of the theme tune and I said to Ash, we want to do a live show. What do you reckon? He said, well, I can get microphones. We can, I mean, all the equipment that we started with using to make the podcast, we only ever had one microphone and it was Ash's microphone. And we had a, a dual thing that was Ash's. So Ash was like, Ash just gave me all his tech. And whenever I had a question, he was there to, to make it happen. So we'd just say to him, I want to do aces and eights. And he'd say, yeah, I'll make that happen. And so we did our first, I think, like three or four shows there. Mm. We did a Christmas special. We booked comedians to open for us because we didn't have a first act, you know, a first half to do. So I, I, I know some of the names of the people that we had, like Katia Kavinge was oh, yeah, on. Yeah. We had Will Seward. We had a, just a bunch of our comedian friends do it. And then we'd come on for the second half only. Then I also was doing stand-up a lot up the creek in Greenwich, and I was very good friends with Gelly, who runs up the creek management as well as the venue. And he was like, you guys got to try it down here. And and he and Ash worked out on the technical side of things. So we were always really lucky because, particularly between Andy and me, we always had friends who did this stuff and wanted to help and And through ticket sales, we were able to pay them, even though there was no advertising at the time. So there was that funding. Or QI was taking the bulk of any financial costs completely on their own. So Mm. they would just pay people to do whatever it was needed. I mean, it was the beautiful thing and the very lucky thing for us is that we were able to turn this into a weekly show because John and Sarah Lloyd, who run QI, saw the show and saw that it was good. And John particularly preferred QI to be making something that was so different and something that he was proud of that was making no money than doing something that was making money that he thought wasn't good. So they gave us everything we needed, the purchasing of microphones and and the editing software and stuff, purely because John was proud of this show. That's that's all it was. It's a very lucky situation we found ourselves in. So what it is is surrounding yourself with brilliant friends have you ever heard of, I don't know if you've heard of this, you know the Rodriguez Lisk? 
No. It's Robert Rodriguez. It's this idea that when he was making his first movie, he had zero budget. So he made a list of all his friends who in some way could contribute. Ah, my uncle owns a bus. Great. I'll write a scene for the movie that's on a bus. Ah, my Mm. friend owns some chickens. Okay, we'll have a scene where they have chickens. And then I can put my friend down as a chicken wrangler, which means that sounds like there's production. And that's Mm. kind of what we did. We did a fish list where it was sort of, you know, who can do the live side? Who can do the art side? Which was Alex Bell, Mm. uh, one of the elves who appears often on on the show um we we brought in all the buddies mm. and just made it a family thing and and yeah so we were very lucky we didn't have to learn anything new and we didn't and we we refused to Still don't know. <laughs> as you learned just as we were trying to set up this podcast recording with you guys <laughs> just thinking about the podcast industry as a whole bring you're pretty much like the ogs of podcasting or you're at least one of them you're at least up there how has the podcast industry changed since you first started just in terms of the community and the listeners and apart from it getting bigger have you noticed any other kind of ways that it's evolved Ooh, it's sometimes quite hard to be aware of what what the industry is especially you know, if you're listening to this in a podcast, you'll know how much work it is to make a podcast. Mm. There's so much to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're recording it regularly, it's it's a big job. Mm. It's, a, it's a huge job to take on. So often kind of the industry can kind of pass you by while you're working on your show and building your audience. And it can be quite hard to notice. So, yeah. I mean, things like the, the podcast festivals that have sprung up and the podcast awards have been wonderful because you get to, you can just go and hang out with people who understand exactly what <laughs> you're going through with a nightmare edit or whatever it is, or, or a question, you know, question of one kind or another. In terms of the changes since we started, I've not really been aware of it, apart from, as you say, things getting bigger and, yeah. And everyone having a, po- a podcast and, and particularly... There's know, more big, famous people, isn't there? A huge wave of, of celebrities having mm. podcasts. And, yeah. uh, you know, they'll they'll turn up and you'll think, yeah, we'll see if you're still there in nine years. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and they never are. <laughs> they, well, not some so make, far. Some make it through. I mean, you have to have time on your hands mm. to make a podcast and, to, and uh, you know, make that time useful. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of really famous people have got, they've got really, really busy lives and making a podcast is bloody hard yeah and it's look if you're peter crouch you're busy Mm. you've got a lot on does he he's retired (laughs) literally epitome of having a lot on (laughs) okay so maybe i pick the one worst example (laughs) retired people are very busy people definitely (laughs) i think as well that the og og would be ricky gervais that carl pilkington stephen Mm -hmm. merchant was that was kind of introduced the world to podcasting. Then there were people ahead of us like Helen Zaltzman, who yes. answered me this. Zaltzman, who's a friend of ours, you know, she was a huge inspiration because at yeah. that point when we were starting, she'd been going for a while already. She'd done a book with Ollie, which was a book of the podcast. Mm. And so that was really inspiring to sort of see where you could take it. To- and we saw that they had 300 episodes and I thought, well, we're never going to do 300 <laughs> yeah. episodes. That's probably where I thought you get to 100 you cool your jets yeah (laughs) but i also remember at the time the stuff that was coming out was very much the phase of two male comedians sitting down turning a microphone off sorry turning it on (laughs) and just riffing for three hours and it really felt like they were making a show just for them Mm. almost don't edit it out because there's like three hours in i make this gag Mm. and i I don't want to be rude to them but that was how it was back then and i think that's where Mm. podcasting got a bit of a reputation of people just waffling away Mm. when we came in i think we were part of a wave of bringing editing certainly we were in the if you looked in the charts it was us and then eventually it was my dad wrote a porno a few months later you know jamie who is a very good friend of ours the the, um all jamie james and alice are all good friends of ours but jamie is basically godfather to your child godfather to my son yeah Mm. and he very much was the same thing high standard the three of them him alice and james we edit 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 you Mm. know that's that's the big thing so I think we were part of this new change where it suddenly turned into polished shows. And that's what it feels like it's evolved into more now. You get comedians coming with a big theme, like off menu, you know, they've brought themselves a theme or parenting hell, Mm. which is brilliant. Those guys are so funny and they've found the perfect packaging. Back in the day, it might've just been them to just riffing on whatever happened that week and it wouldn't have been as big. 
because there's less to grip onto. With that, give yourself a, a theme and you've locked yourself into a good place. Mm. For us, it was a very simple sell. Who are the people behind the QI facts? Well, four of them are getting around a microphone each week and telling their favorite ones they found that week. And it's a show about enthusiasm. There was It was such a packaged thing that you could get your head around immediately. So for me, that's where the industry has changed slightly. There's a lot of investment now in the idea behind the show, whereas before it was a, a space just to to reach out with ideas. Mm. I feel like you've you've brought us on perfectly to our closer, which is a really hard one. What is your favorite fact (laughs) that you've ever found out that always springs to mind? Because you must have been asked this. As a film critic, I get asked all the time what my favorite movie is, and it changes from week to week. But at the moment, what is your favorite fact? Well, ours, ours does change week to week as well. Yeah, it's hard to know. I have one which I love. Sometimes the ones you love most are the ones where you made the connection rather mm. than it being just a fact. And mm. for me, it was the fact that the whoopee cushion was invented by a Roman emperor called Basianus. <laughs> and, <laughs> and obviously, that's not how you pronounce it, but it's how it looks when it's written. It's Basianus. Uh, he was called Elagabalus. And I just, I was reading his wiki and I saw that he'd invented the whoopee cushion. And I just couldn't believe it's like otherwise known as Basianus. I was like, are you kidding me? So that that for me is always been one of the um the highlights my my favorite one of andy's just while you're thinking mm. of one is the finnish budget meatballs oh, yeah. one. do yeah. you want to say that no you say it. so andy found this did this on the show it's probably on the back of this jumper <laughs> um finnish budget meatballs contained so little meat in them that they were forced to rebrand themselves so now they're just sold as balls <laughs> they're just <laughs> they're no longer meatballs they're just balls <laughs> Yeah, oh. that's that's definitely one of my favourites from Andy. As well as doing the archive, I'm in the fish inbox at the moment. We get sent brilliant facts by listeners ah. all the time. Dan, you might like to know that there was also a Roman emperor called Poopy Anus. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What did he invent? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, the toilet paper, surely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love how anuses come up with all of your facts so like, <laughs> yeah. when you were going through Anna's sort of highlight show and yeah. the, the prolapsed oh my god I was actually gagging on my I think I was a bit hungover and I was gagging on the my walk oh my goodness <laughs> that, yeah it's a prolapsed ox rectum wasn't it it's hard to describe now but that's maybe my favourite bit in nine years of the show just <laughs> really? the sheer awful hilarity of the whole thing when we were discussing it yeah there are a few moments that stick in the mind like that For my part, my favourite fact, I think, is the one that the show takes its name from. It's such a a lovely thing to introduce to people who have never kind of heard it before. And just watching them kind of mentally unpack it is always just an absolute delight. That was also a, when we were coming up with titles for the show, that was on the list, but it was never a leader. And it was it's very interesting how when you're talking about the show, you naturally just start giving it a thing. And we just kept saying, you know, the fish show, if we were because various different ideas were floating around the office. Mm. And so it kind of gravitated towards that. But also what we loved was we're a show about facts and the name of the show is a fact. Mm. That there was something so delicious about that. And then when we started, and I think this was a moment where we knew that we didn't have to be as prescriptive with the podcast as as we thought we did. We used to open up the shows. And I think if you listen to the first 20 or so episodes, maybe, James and I had recorded a bit where you get before the theme tune, you get this bit of James going, so um, you know that thing, there's no such thing as a fish. What do you mean there's no such thing as a fish? No, seriously, it's in the underwater encyclopedia, blah, blah, blah. It says no such thing as a fish. And then our theme tune comes in. And we thought we needed to do that to explain the title. And there's that lovely moment quite far in, 20 weeks in or whatever, where you just go, we don't need to explain the title. Just let it be. Get rid Mm. of that bit and let's just begin the show. And it's weird what bits you remember over the nine years as kind of as being pivotal, important things. And losing the explanation for me was one of them. It was a felt like you'd made it. You no longer needed to feel the need to explain yourself. Should be called There's No Such Thing as a Fish. No Such Thing as a Fish isn't a sentence, really. Yeah. Well, on that brilliant note. (laughs) Where were you? 
470 episodes ago. <laughs> Praying that it wouldn't go further than just the first one, yeah. apparently. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Dan, Andy, thank you so much for joining us on PodPod. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks thank for you. having us. That was Dan Schreiber and Andrew Hunter-Murray talking about no such thing as a fish. I sort of feel like it's pointless asking me what my favourite takeaway from that interview was, just because I loved the entire thing. I mean, I hear their voices more than anybody else like in my family, even. So <laughs> it's 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 really weird sort of having a, a conversation with them for the first time and not just wanting to sit back and listen to them talk to each other, mm. which I was very happy to do as well. Reem, you were listening. What did you take away from this particular interview? What really stood out? Well, besides the fact that I enjoyed watching you guys fangirl (laughs) (laughs) while interviewing them, one of my interesting takeaways from the conversation was when they were talking about advertising and they spoke about the fact that when they started, which was what, like nine nine years ago, because they just had their ninth anniversary, yeah. the access to advertising wasn't as big as it is now. And I think for like newcomer podcasters, the uh, advertising is so easy and there's so many different options that they can go through. So it's hard to imagine like starting out when, when really you're just kind of like doing it out of something that you love and not really looking for sources of revenue or not having to get super creative in, in the way that you do get revenue. And it's like a, a reminder of like where podcasting has started and how much it has evolved now. Mm. Thinking about that sort of evolution, I guess the idea of them saying that really intimate gigs are quite intimidating and the really massive gigs are intimidating and that there's a sort of happy medium. I found really fascinating because for an audience member, it must be such a thrill to be part of something where you're only sort of like 50, 100 people. Like if, if you're going to a live concert even or, you know, an acoustic session where it's there's something incredibly special about that. I never really thought about the impact that it would have on a performer or in this case, a podcaster who might actually struggle to get the same sort of repartee going as they would with a crowd of 200 or more. I really liked hearing about Andy's perspective on that. Adam, what about you? I was really interested in the fact that the live shows were pretty much self-started I had kind of assumed, I guess, that it was the result of the success of the podcast and someone listening to it and, you know, like a a booker or, you know, an events planner or something reaching out to them and going, hey, you know, we'd love to have you at our venue for a live recording. But the fact that they just basically thought, yeah, this, we think this has legs as a live show. And particularly at a time when live shows weren't as much of a thing as they've now become probably thanks in no small part to the success of fish's live tours the fact Mm. that they just reached out off their own back and made it all happen i think is is really interesting and yeah i suppose you can say that about their entire podcast Mm. it feels like dan particularly is such a driving force of kind of knowing where he wants his podcast to go he's very much an elf made man oh god (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not sorry. Have you got that tumbleweed sound effect anywhere? (laughs) I don't know. It's quite inspiring to think that podcasters shouldn't sort of sit back on their laurels and wait to be discovered, but they should be driving all of that themselves. It's quite tempting, isn't it, to think, oh, one day I could be playing that, but that's got to come from from you. I think that's great. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's a real inspiration for other podcasters to do the same. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about some of the challenges inherent in kind of monetizing a podcast with maybe not enormous, but very highly engaged audience. And the fact that fish have managed to build a really quite successful kind of touring live podcast business just off the back of taking a chance on booking a small room and seeing how they did. I think there's a lot of podcasters that could follow that example and just put themselves out there and see how it goes. Mm. Well, I hope that I get a free hoodie out of this, at least. Uh, mm, no too. such thing, hoodie. They are nice hoodies. They are lovely hoodies. Thank you so much to Dan Schreiber and Andrew Hunter-Murray for joining us on PodPod this week. And thank you to Adam and Reem as well for sharing your insights. And you can find out so much more on podpod.com. And look for the articles that Reem has written because... 
Reem's a great writer. She's not going to say it, but she really is. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Sign up to our daily email bulletins and you can follow us on social at PodPod Official. The podcast is produced by Emma Caution for Haymarket Business Media and she's going to have quite the job cutting down this particular week's interview. <laughs> I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.